0: A landlord is a rent recipient who makes money in his sleep without working. So rent is a payment uh, for uh, to a either a landlord, or a monopolist, or to a mineral uh, miner or oil company, or to, uh, to a bank or in a financial institution that doesn't play any role in production at all.
1: Hello, this is Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 180, and this episode is with Michael Hudson, who is Distinguished Research Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Michael, like many of my guests, has a number of research projects, but a few of them are history, uh, domestic and international finance, the role of debt in buttressing the upper class and shaping societal stratification, and a bunch of others. But that last one is mainly what we talk about in this episode. So we discuss the the Rentier class, which incidentally I had never heard about before looking at Michael's work, Uh, how debt is tied to industrial capitalism and neoliberalism. And then we finally turn to Michael's solution to the economic woes of our times, other than that, I have a big big small announcement, which is that due to popular demand and my current but hopefully fleeting uh, financial woes, I have decided to start a patreon my it, well one i 'm not asking anybody to donate money to the patreon. Uh, But if you feel so inclined, that would be wonderful. Anyway, my intention had been to do this when there were more subscribers and thus more ads. Uh, But there's currently only one ad on uh, Spotify. But uh, for $5 a month at the moment, there will be an ad-free feed, show notes, and transcripts for every episode and the link will be in the description or at robinsonairhart.com. other than that as always likes reviews subscribes these things are extraordinarily helpful so please keep them coming and now without any further ado i hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as i enjoyed having it with michael Mm. I am from Chicago. And when I saw that you went to the University of Chicago lab school, which I know quite well, and then the University of Chicago, which I also know quite well, uh, when the Chicago School of Economics was promoting the free market and probably in its heyday, I immediately found myself wondering, when you're in this environment, how was it that you or when was it that you came to believe that? What, as you put it, was ostensibly a libertarian ideology, was in fact becoming a tool for financial interests to manipulate the government and cheat the 99%.
0: I was there from 1955 to 1959. I never went, I never knew anything at all about the uh, economics department, didn't know anybody there. Uh, On one occasion, uh, I met somebody at a party who wasn't a business school and uh he was very awkward uh some uh he uh, was some girl uh and uh asked uh, asked for her phone number uh and you could see she didn't like him and uh she gave it to him and then uh, aaron uh he'd sort of uh, this was uh, i think it a uh, tisch German table so I knew him from the German group there uh and my degree was in Germanic uh, uh, history and philology uh, actually and uh, he said you know that that uh, girl was really stupid so attractive but so stupid that she didn't even know her f- phone number and I said what do you mean she said well that was the phone number of the fire department uh he didn't get it but uh he was being set up uh and that's the only uh that was my first introduction to how uh you un- know free mar- uh free market economists uh, think. They take everything on the surface. There's no uh, understanding of uh, the structure and back of it all. Uh, but I never knew anybody from the business school. My uh, interest uh, certainly was not in Chicago economics. Uh, I uh, The reason I took German uh, was because the German teachers were in charge of all sorts of other departments. Uh, uh, Harry Yolas. Uh, uh, was in charge of the comparative literature, uh, the uh, history of culture department. Uh, and that really was what I wanted to study. History of culture enabled me to take any course I wanted, cafeteria style. So I was taking art history and uh, uh, I was studying music at uh, DePaul University in Roosevelt simultaneously. Uh, and uh, there was Germans were in charge of the comparative literature department. So uh, that just meant I could take everything uh, cafeteria style, basically, and uh, uh, my contacts were largely with uh, 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 humanities professors, literature professors, uh, historian, uh, history. That was what I was uh, studying. Nothing about economics. I never had uh, any idea at all of uh, studying economics until I came to New York and uh, 1960
1: and 61. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, a better and a, a funnier answer than I, I'd bargained for. So was it then your time at NYU that opened you up to the alternatives to praising the free market without looking at a, a deeper level?
0: No, uh, they didn't discuss uh, free market either. Uh, we were told some, uh, I, I had uh, one of the uh, stupidest uh Uh, professors I'd ever had, uh, Stephen Roussius, who was teaching uh, uh, monetary theory. And uh, he was just uh, uh, sort of a a, a neoclassical neoliberal. uh, And uh, everything he said was wrong. Uh, I I got a a C plus in uh, the money and banking course, because he was... uh, uh, the question uh, was supposed to be about Hyman Minsky, uh, who at that time was not known for what he later became known for, for modern monetary theory. But I, uh, this was in 1964, uh, no, 63, when uh, he'd written something about uh, uh, savings banks actually uh, uh, aggravating the financial cycle because his theory was that savings banks put some of their money uh, their savings into commercial banks and his theory abstractly enough was that the commercial banks would lend out into the regular economy personal loans mortgage loans etc uh what he didn't what uh the prophet neither uh vinsky nor the professor knew was that I worked for the central bank for the savings banks the Savings Banks Trust Company uh, for uh, three years from 19, I guess, maybe two years, 61 to 64. And all of the uh, uh, New York State 135 savings banks kept all of their uh, uh, reserves in the uh, Savings Banks Trust Company, which w- invested it in, only in bonds, uh, including World Bank bonds, government bonds, but didn't make any loans at all into the general economy that wasn't what it was set up for and, uh, so to think that yes here's a saving a uh, a commercial bank it it must act like the other other commercial banks uh that's and uh, that's called correlation without causality uh and uh rusia said that i didn't understand the theory uh and that reality had nothing to do with theory that i was there to learn theory not reality uh and uh That was my uh, introduction to making and monetary theory. Uh, The the good thing about NYU was uh, it didn't want my brain. All it really wanted was my money uh, to pay for the tuition. I tried to take all 20 courses in the one semester, but they were very hypocritical and insisted that I couldn't understand. Uh, the understanding was slow and would take, uh, you know, one year for the MA and two years for the PhD. Not realizing that uh, you can compress nothing into nothing, uh, you know, just as well as, uh, three years into nothing. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, I I got my degree, the union card because at that time I was working first in the savings banks and then in 1964 in, in December on at Chase Manhattan.
1: Well, one question that I wanted to ask before we get to the meat of your writing and particularly your book, The Destiny of Civilization, is how you think of or define debt and debt inflation. And since debt is so vital to what we'll discuss, I thought it would be a good idea to determine to what extent this is a a term of art for an economist that has more nuances than it does in our colloquial usage.
0: I don't think I've ever used the term debt inflation. What does it
1: mean? All right. Well, that's why I was asking you, but I think it's in the book, but debt inflation is the increase of debt over time. That
0: I think that I call that the exponential growth of debt at compound interest. Okay. Uh, and uh, I thought we were going to talk about killing the host. It's, it's okay if we don't. Uh, but in killing the host, I have a whole chapter on uh, compound interest uh, that it, uh, the volume of debt multiplies simply by mathematical uh, principles uh, of compound interest, not by uh, any uh, relationship to productivity or the ability to pay or uh, the real economy. The financial system of credit and debt uh, is imposed on the economy of production and consumption uh, but is not a does not reflect the relations of uh, production and consumption, profits and wages and earnings and the ability to pay, it merely intrudes upon them. And uh, the exponential growth of uh, debt uh, at compound interest uh, always tends to exceed the uh, uh, economy's ability to grow uh, through uh, national income, GDP, or the ability to pay, uh, which goes up and down Whereas compound interest does not have a downturn, it just goes upward steadily. Uh, And one of the reasons that economies turn down is because the debt overhead grows so much that it uh, uh, deflates. I talk about debt deflation, not debt inflation. And the term I use again and again is debt deflation. And that is that paying uh, creditors, paying debts to the financial sector, removes uh, purchasing power from the uh, the consumer spending and from uh, corporate spending on uh, industrial capital formation, so we have debt uh, deflation. There is credit uh, asset price inflation. Very often, debt finance, but asset price inflation is achieved at the cost of debt deflation.
1: Hmm. Is is this this concept of? debt deflation and credit inflation, what contributed or something that contributed to the housing market crash a decade or so ago?
0: Yes. Uh, and in fact, uh, when I was uh, at the Savings Bank Trust Company, my uh, job uh, was to trace uh, deposits uh, and uh, uh, and mortgages because savings banks uh, were supposed to lend all of their money uh, out to mortgages in a circular flow. Well, the deposit uh, a, a trend uh, for each each bank would be a zigzag. Mm-hmm. And it would jump every three months when interest uh, interest on the accounts was credited. So the, obviously, people weren't really increasing their savings very much, uh, but the increase came just from the accrual of interest that banks would pay out of the mortgage interest that they charged on uh, the loans that they made to, to home buyers. So I realized that as the uh, volume of savings banks uh, increased, uh, assets increased, uh, they were going to recycle it, lend it out, yet more mortgage And politically, the savings banks were advocating uh, a more and more deregulation so they could make more and more mortgage loans. They wanted to loan outside of New York State. Uh, when uh, I, I got married, Uh, my wife and her family had, uh, been depositing at a local savings bank for, uh, over 20 years. Uh, and you'd think that I would have qualified for getting a loan. Uh, but they said, uh, the bank said, no, uh, we can make more money by lending to Florida, uh, where, uh, interest rates are deregulated and the demand is we're not really lending to New York City people anymore, to our depositors. So I, I thought, well, there goes the whole idea of mutual savings banks, that there's something mutual there. It's uh, and mutually antagonistic uh, savings banks. Uh, and uh, uh, I ended up getting the mortgage in Chase Ma- Ma- Manhattan uh, instead. Uh, since I was working there, it was fairly easy. So uh, you have the exponential growth of debt recycled into lo- uh, more and more uh, loans in and, and the mortgage market and uh when uh in the 60s uh when i was doing uh watching how the uh, savings uh, uh banks and the commercial banks market worked uh there there was a rule of thumb uh by bankers you uh the loan that uh, you uh, that mortgage loan that you would give out to borrowers uh had to be uh couldn't char- absorb more than 25% of the borrower's income, and uh, this would be for a loan that was repayable over 30 years, self-amortizing, and there had to be at least a 10%, preferably a 30% deposit uh, down payment, uh, so that uh, you knew that the bank would uh, be able to, uh, to be repaid. Well, the banks made more and more money, uh, and the commercial banks, uh, uh, just like the savings banks, uh and uh ended up uh making 80 percent of commercial bank loans in the united states britain and other countries are mortgage loans. uh the commercial banks then uh during the reagan era uh raided and uh, uh essentially emptied out they merged with the savings banks took all the money didn't pay the depositors any of the supposedly uh gains that the depositors made they stole they stole all the savings of uh, New York savings banks. Uh, Sheila Bear, uh, uh explained some of the details uh, as to just how this was done from Wall Street's uh, uh, aim uh, to me one day. But I was watching it happen uh, while I even at the savings banks. Uh, most of the directors of the savings banks were people who deposited in the savings banks. Some were plumbers. Uh, some were restaurant owners. Uh, they, they weren't financially sophisticated enough. Uh, and Sheila Bair said, well, the promise of uh, Wall Street, well, now we're going to uh, uh, increase uh, the, uh, uh, the the professional uh, management and the savings of the savings banks. What they did was they closed down the savings banks and uh, the poor areas, areas with minorities, uh, lived or the low-income areas. It was just uh, a total uh, travesty of the whole thing. But at any rate, for your question, uh, y- yes, uh, the the commercial banks uh, loosened the terms of mortgage loans so that by 2008, uh, when the crisis came, you could buy a loan with zero down payment. And actually, uh, you would borrow more than the value of the house. Typically, Uh, 101 or 102 percent so you'd have enough money over the payment for the house with no money you could afford to have it painted and pay the uh uh, pay for the uh, insurance costs and the brokerage fee and the other things uh and and the uh the mortgage uh, instead of uh, being limited to 25 percent of your income went all the way up to 43 percent of the income so today you have uh, the fannie mae the government uh, in a mortgage insurance agency uh, guaranteeing mortgages that no bank will lose any money on a mortgage as long as it doesn't absorb more than 43 percent of the borrower's income and in the united states now housing costs are about 40 percent of the income well also uh in the uh, another problem in 2008 in addition to the uh uh, low uh uh, down uh, payment uh, in addition to the uh increase in uh, income from that absorbed uh there was no uh there were false appraisals of the buildings uh they used crooked appraisers because then you could lend more money uh and the fourth factor was uh you you would have no guarantee that there the uh buyer had any income at all they just, uh, the the banks would uh, work, would conspire with the uh, uh, brokerage companies to make up a, a fictitious income statement, to pretend that the buyer could afford it, even though they had no job, uh, e- even if they were making no income. Uh, they would falsify the price of the house. Uh, and then they would look for a sucker. Uh, and the biggest suckers, I guess, as always, are were the Germans, uh, the local uh, state German savings banks. Uh, I'm told today Germany thinks that uh, uh, Russia or Ukraine uh, uh, broke, uh, blew up the uh, Nord Stream lines. You know that that was the kind of mentality. I'd never question an American. If American says that it, it's got to be right. They bought all the chunk. Uh, uh, were broke. Bro- uh, the the uh, uh, Wall Street would uh, bribe uh, pension funds to uh, buy these. Uh, Package mortgages. Uh, and uh, basically, the mortgages were junk mortgages. And that's why uh, the uh, newspapers, even before 2008, were using the term junk mortgages uh, and ninja uh, borrowers. So yes, uh, it was the loosening uh, of, uh, of uh, it was a deregulation that led to the mortgage crash, as my UMKC colleague uh, Bill Black is uh, uh, described. Uh, this was uh, a, a, a basically criminal fraud, uh, and Bill Black had uh, been uh, in charge of prosecuting the savings and loan fraud in the nineteen uh, uh, the nineteen eighties. Uh, and what happened under uh, Greenspan was uh, the much greater uh, commercial banking fraud that nobody went to jail. Uh, but uh but they they uh, obama punished the victims he punished the victims of the jump mortgages he evicted uh 8 million american families uh so that they would default uh, creating a bonanza of uh purchase of uh buying uh distress sale uh buildings and uh, turning america uh, from a, a homeowner's economy into a rental economy, home ownership rates plunged, uh as a result of the crisis, and that was the objective, and remains the objective of the Democratic Party uh, today—to uh, uh, replace home with a with a, a a rentier society, a landlord society to sort of roll back the economy so that it looks like uh, it did in uh, in Europe before the nineteenth century, it's uh, uh, it's the kind of neo
1: feudalism. Yeah, well, that was very helpful, and I think that the story points to a concept that we'll get to shortly, and that's the financialization of the economy. But before we get there, I think that was really helpful because I think I find it very useful to pin down key concepts at the beginning of these conversations. And you just mentioned the rentier Society and the other concept that I wanted to pin down was was rent. And so, how does rent differ in principle from other forms of income like profit or wages?
0: So the entire focus of classical uh, political economy, from the Physiocrats to Adam Smith to Ricardo and Malthus to John Stuart Mill uh, to Marx uh, to Thorstein Veblen, uh, was uh, a value and price theory they realized that uh, not all prices uh for goods and services or for uh assets were uh were actually had cost value that rent was the excess of the price over and above the actual cost of production it was um, uh, imposed on the economy just like uh, debt uh and finance was imposed on the economy property ownership uh uh in the form of a hereditary landlord class the uh the heirs of the uh, Nordic uh, uh, Northmen who conquered England, who conquered uh, France uh, and assigned themselves uh, land rent uh, were basically uh, for 800 years uh, uh, burdening the economy uh, with land rent and the entire political focus of classical economics was to get rid of the fact that uh, land. Uh, there was a landlord class that uh, all, uh, all anybody who occupied a building uh, or uh, lived in it or owned it had to pay rent to this uh, hereditary landlord class that didn't play any productive role at all. That made money in their sleep. So, and that's what uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, uh, the terminology he used to describe the landlord. A landlord is a rent recipient who makes money in his sleep without working. So rent is a payment uh, for uh, to a either a landlord or a monopolist or to a mineral uh, miner or oil company or to, uh, to a bank or in a financial institution that doesn't play any role in production at all. Well, if you have a class of rentiers, of landlords and monopolists whose price does not reflect any necessary cost of production—that's economic rent—and more and more, the uh, the uh, what is called GDP or national income uh, does not take the form of wages and uh, profits uh, made by producing goods and services by industrial uh, companies. Uh, it takes the form of economic rent, uh, mainly uh, land rent. Uh, most of the increase in uh, the cost of uh, housing uh, and commercial property in the United States, the rising site value uh, of the land that's inflated by by uh, credit, whatever a bank will lend, uh, it, is a, it defines the price. Uh, monopoly rent, you're having even the public, uh, the mass media in America called profit inflation. What they mean by profit inflation is when a company, a monopoly, will decide simply to raise prices because there's no competition, nothing to stop it. So uh, this is reported as profits, but it's really rent. Uh, the problem is that since about 1890, uh, really for the last 130 years, uh, the, uh, the economic statistics have stopped reporting rent. Uh, the, uh, the landlords fought back, uh, and the bankers backed the landlords in fighting, fighting back. And the, uh, the anti-classical, Uh, anti-regulatory, anti-government approach to economics that there is no such thing as unearned income. I give all of the citations from John Bates Clark and other people in uh, my book, uh, Killing the Hope, but uh, there's the denial in modern neoclassical economics uh, that uh, all income is earned, all wealth is earned, and if somebody's a billionaire, they've made it by earning it, by playing a productive role, in the economy. There's no concept in the national income accounts of rentier income. Everything is counted as profit uh, or providing a a service. For instance, if you you may wonder when, uh, uh, right today, if you look at the statistics, you find people falling behind in their uh, credit card accounts. And their credit card interest goes up from the normal 19 to 23% uh, interest charge to over 30%. And, uh, if you want to know where did this increase, how did the national income account treat this? Uh, penalties and credit card companies are making more money on penalties than they're actually making in interest. Well, all of that is counted in the national income accounts under providing financial services. It's a service, uh, when you, uh, uh increase uh, the penalty. Uh, on depositors. This is the kind of craziness that you get when uh, they they won't uh, acknowledge that uh, the phenomenon of economic rent is unearned income, uh, whose payment int- becomes a cost of living and a cost of doing business and a cost to companies that have to pay labor to pay uh, 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 various forms of economic rent. Uh, uh, but it's not part of the production. So uh, the uh, the statement that America's GDP is growing uh, overlooks the fact that uh, the actual product is tapering off or shrinking. And all this, what they call this growth, it's largely the growth of the wealthiest 10% that are making their money through rent extraction. It's an extraction activity, a zero-sum activity. The money that the financial sector or the, land, uh, the landlord or the uh, monopolist gets is uh, not adding to the profit the product. It's a transfer payment from the consumer or the renter or the uh, debtor to uh, the rentier at the top. So uh, our economic statistics pretend to be empirical, but they're not describing how the world really works at all. They're describing
1: a kind of parallel universe. Hmm. Well, hopefully I don't have the numbers wrong, but I believe that a few minutes ago, you said that in much of the 20th century, the structure of the economy in the United States was shifting back to a mode from before the 18th century and earlier. And this, of course, suggests that something else was going on in the 19th century when the Western world was also still capitalist. And people typically use the word capitalism, I think, as if it's a univocal concept. And I don't know it. Capitalism. No. No. Right, no, right. Uh,
0: th- nobody, uh, the word capitalism was uh, developed by uh, uh, the German, Werner Sombart.
1: Good. I was going to say that I don't know if this stems from the origin of the word, where it was just meant to reflect that some take capitals, capital from others, or that some... Capital the- was used, but not cap- nobody turned the idea of capital into capitalism. Mm-hmm. Or that... But but you quite ha- my point though is that you distinguish a variety of, version of versions of capitalism that are not equal, and I think the right place for us to start is with industrial capitalism. And so, yes, that but yeah. So what was the system, and what was its purpose, if it can be said to have one?
0: Well, what made uh, it was really Marx that described how industrial capitalism was an, uh, basically different from feudalism. And from the ancient mode of uh, production, uh, and capitalism, uh, with uh, Marx said, every uh, uh, era has its own form of uh, creating a surplus, ultimately from labor. In feudalism, you them. The serfs were tied to the land. They had to turn over their uh, 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 the crop to the, uh, uh, to the uh, landowner, to the local lord. Uh, the ancient mode of production was slavery and usury, uh, but uh, the capitalist mode of production uh, was uh, free labor. Labor could work uh, and live wherever it wanted; wasn't tied to the land. In fact, it was driven off the land uh, into the cities uh, to seek employment as wage labor. And uh, the industrial capitalists differed from uh, the land uh, the landowners, so uh, landlords, an aristocracy who uh who were the, the uh, basics of feudalism because the industrialists uh employed wage labor to, uh and to produce a product. Uh, the industrial capitalists would uh obtain the money to uh, employ labor and buy capital buy a uh, uh, a factory in order to uh, produce uh, uh, uh the goods you buy machinery, Buy the fuels to run the machinery. Uh, he would organize the uh, economics of production to produce goods that he would serve at a higher price than it cost to employ labor and buy the raw materials and buy uh, uh, and uh, uh, we bought the production. So, Marx said that uh, all uh, forms of exploiting labor were, in one sense or another, exploitative. Slavery employed it of antiquity. Uh, exploited labor by uh, just uh, giving it uh, the bare, bare minimum cost uh, of subsistence. Uh, feudalism exploited labor by just uh, uh, tying it to the land, taking what it produced. Uh, uh, and this was purely exploitative. Uh, capitalism uh, exploited labor in the sense that, the, yes, the capitalist made a profit by uh, uh, employing labor, but the capitalist, unlike the landlord, and unlike the slave owner, actually played a productive role in organizing production. The capitalist who organized industry and made possible growth, and uh, as the American economists uh, pointed out, especially in the nineteenth century, they said the capital, uh, an intelligent capitalist, is going to realize that uh, high-wage labor is more productive than low-wage labor. So the intelligent capitalist is going to do two things. Number one, he's going to pay uh, labor enough to be healthier, uh, to be well-fed, well-clothed, and well, well-educated, well so that uh, labor's living standards will be uplifted in capitalism instead of the feudal uh, a ment- rentier mentality of, to, to pay them as little as possible and take all the profit. The capitalist had to be part of an expansion, but also the capitalists uh, didn't want to have to pay for uh, many of the costs that labor had. So the capitalists uh, wanted uh, an increasing role of government. Outside of England, the capitalists wanted industrial tariff protection, so that uh, the prices would be high enough so that domestic industrialists could afford to make the capital investment in uh, plant and equipment uh, uh, in order to uh, rival that of England. Uh, That's what Germany did. That's what America did, uh, protectionism. Uh, secondly, they wanted the government to bear as many of uh, what are now called the external costs of production as possible. As much of the labor's uh, consumption that uh, did not that the employer did not have to pay should be paid by government. So, uh, uh, England, America, Germany, all the uh, uh, enlightened capitalist economies said, "Well, we're going to want government to provide certain basic needs." Uh, that are not monopolies like public health. Uh, and it was the conservatives, it was the capitalist class that was really fighting for this. Uh, in England, it was uh, Benjamin Disraeli uh, that advocated health, health is everything, and advocated public health uh, for England uh, much better than you get to today's uh, uh, thatcherized and, uh, uh, public health system. Uh, another thing would be education. Uh, uh, America's uh was laid out geographically in terms of school districts where each district would finance uh its own public education uh the government uh in europe uh especially would, uh, would treat any uh in- inherent monopoly as something that uh, the government should produce because the government would provide uh this uh, the re- these services not at cost but either freely like education or healthcare, or a subsidized rate so the governments uh in, in europe uh, would have public uh organ- public uh telephone system public communication public transportation public water and sewer every every industry that could be monopolized uh, uh, was uh, held to be uh, appropriately in the government so that it would minimize the cost of living and by minimizing the cost, the labor of having to pay for health care and education and uh, uh, basic needs, uh, they would minimize the cost of doing business to the employer and to the economy. So Marx said the uh, tendency of industrial capitalism, uh, the law of motion of uh, industrial capitalism was to move towards socialism, to evolve towards an increasing uh, role of uh, 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 uh Public uh, uh, capital investment. Uh, and also, uh, industrial capitalism needed financing. And Marx said that in, uh, uh, capitalism had revolutionized uh, finance, at least in Germany, it was, that the old financial system uh, in England, Holland, uh, America was uh, purely uh, predatory. It was uh, not productive. Loans were made uh, for war financing uh, ever since the Uh, 13th century uh, crusades, uh, it was the Vatican that had taken the lead in organizing a European financial system to finance the crusades and and wars, uh, not to play any uh, kind of a productive role. But Marx said, finally, industrial capitalism has a use of credit that doesn't involve war, it doesn't involve uh, uh, corruption, it doesn't uh, uh, involve uh, making loans to unproductive governments. Industrial capitalism is going to make governments themselves productive. Uh, and for that, uh, it's going to make not only uh, transportation and health care and education a public utility, it'll make uh banking in effect the public utility. And that's what you had uh in Germany developing uh up until World War One. So that by the time World War One broke out, uh even in England, uh, uh Economists wrote articles in the economic journal, other publications saying that they worried that uh, Germany was going to win a World War One because it had uh, productive uh, uh, banking as a public utility that could finance uh, actual capital investment, uh, whereas uh, British and European banking and American banking simply was asset stripping. It wanted uh, to uh, have profits paid out to dividends to make money for the stockholders and for the bondholders, not to reinvest in expanding uh, production as occurred in in Germany and Central Europe. So capitalism was uh, uh, basically uh, a a transition towards socialism uh, uh, and uh, starting with a mixed economy. All of the capitalist economies were mixed economies, uh, but being a mixed economy, the political fight was to take control of the government away from landlords and away from the rentier class and put it in the hands of the industrial class that allied with uh, the wage earning class uh, together against the landlords. And that was basically what the 19, the 1848 revolutions were all about, uh, the uh, labor in capital against the landlords, monopolists. Uh, And the banks. And that was the basic uh, political uh, orientation uh, of capitalism. Well, obviously, this entailed uh, how do you take over the governments of England, France, and other countries that are controlled basically by the House of Lords? And the House of Lords fought against uh, any attempt to tax the land, any attempt to uh get rid of the protective tariffs that had raised uh food prices uh in england from 1815 when the uh, napoleonic wars ended to uh, finally 1846 when the corn laws the protective tariffs were uh, uh, put aside uh they they wanted uh free trade and not protecting other uh, the landlords uh but the uh, bring the cost of food in england down the cost of production in the cheapest market, which was basically the United States. Uh, So uh, you you had uh, the objective of uh, industrial capitalism was to compete with other countries by lowering the cost of production, including the cost of uh, hiring labor, by uh, having uh, governments pick up uh, more and more of the cost of production through uh, public infrastructure uh, investment.
1: Well, well, let me try to to summarize just a little bit before we move on, because there was a lot there and you can correct me where and if I'm wrong. But so the wealthy's primary mode of extracting capital in feudal times was essentially slavery and then usury. And actually, it's worth noting you had a really nice phrase that I'd never heard before in your book, and that was predatory usurious finance. I'd never heard or read the word usurious before, and I liked it. Uh, but then after the Industrial Revolution, the capitalist played a productive role, which he hadn't before, by organizing labor. And then now restricting ourselves to the United States, there was a swing back to usury and the rentier economy after World War One, And this leads me to ask, what it was that caused this change? Was it the loans you mentioned that had always financed wars, but in this case, it coincided with the rise of the military-industrial complex?
0: Uh, you, you had uh, the landlord class saw that uh, that industrial capitalism was succeeding in creating governments who looked at uh, their task as sponsoring economic growth and raising living standards meaning the productivity of labor uh and in promoting industry at the expense of the rentier class the the, the landlords the monopolists the the minor uh mining companies and oil extractors and potential monopolies uh and the 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 rich uh people uh, the, the dominant uh, rich all saw this as uh Uh, the the dynamic of capitalism is being at their expense. When the United States uh, created the income tax in 1913, uh, uh, beginning uh, right after 1914, uh, only 1% of Americans had to pay the income tax because you had to have income over a certain level uh, in order to uh, be uh, taxed. Uh, Most Americans didn't make enough to even file an income tax report. And uh, that uh, almost everybody who paid an income tax, uh, the rich people, uh, uh, the rich families, uh, the power elite, uh, C. Right Mills told them, either made their money from real estate or in banking and finance or by having some kind of monopoly like John D. Rockefeller in uh, oil or uh, Andrew Carnegie in, in steel uh, banks were looked at as the mother of trust. So banking uh, in the United States and England always played a reactionary role. Uh, the bankers did not help industrial capitalism. They, they, Their loyalty was to their class, which was the rentier class. They suppo- They supported the fight against uh, the whole classical uh, economics. They wanted to uh, say, uh, and they financed, uh, uh, Bad universities, like Columbia University, was uh, one of the centers of the Rontier University. That's where they had uh, John Bates Clark. And Columbia University, which uh, was, I think, at that time, the largest landowner in New York City, uh, did everything it could to fight against land taxation. And uh, they were fighting against uh, Henry George, who was uh, uh, a uh, not a good economist, but a popular journalist who was advocating uh, a land tax. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the wealthy families all got together and say, we don't want to be productive. It's really hard to be productive. If you're a capitalist, you have to organize uh, the production of an industry. You have to advertise. You have to create markets. You have to use your brain. We don't have brains. We don't have to have brains. We inherited the money. So and we want to run the economy without brains, just purely predatory. It's our mentality. That's what we do. Uh, that's where our ancestors gave us all the money by being predatory. Uh, and uh, there was a hatred of actual enterprises. People had to actually work for a living. It was, in a way, very much like ancient Rome. Looking, uh, uh, if, you may, if you're may, if you an aristocrat, you didn't want to dirty your hands by actually making money and playing a productive role. You wanted just to live off the fat of the land, uh, uh, to be a parasite. Uh, and that's what the rich want to be. It's not that they, they don't want to be called parasites. But they want to be parasites. Uh, they want to call themselves uh, the most productive class uh, that they're in. But they're the most uh, predatory class, and they play no role in production. And actually, by increasing uh, their gravitization of uh, land rent, they they are responsible for deindustrializing uh, the American economy and uh, now uh, uh, the European economies as well. So that. Uh, uh, basically, that, I hope that answers
1: the question. Mm-hmm, it does. And maybe this is where we end up inadvertently returning to the beginning of our conversation and the Chicago School. But in connection to everything we've just been discussing, how do you think of the phrase neoliberal ideology? And if I'm right to interpret you this way, why is it in fact antithetical to the free market and instead favorable to the wealthy rentier class that we've been discussing? Well, the, the word neo very often is uh, uh, antithetical. It was Thorstein
0: Veblen who coined the word neoclassical. And you think, what does neoclassical mean? It sounds like the new, uh, you know, they're saying, are they saying what the classical economists said? And what Veblen actually meant was, no, it's the opposite of classical economics. It was the new uh, mainstream. It was the new uh, official uh, economics. What uh, was neo was the status of this anti-classical economic. So a neoliberal is supposed to be. You know, you used to think of liberals as being for public uh, infrastructure investment and socially productive. But neoliberal, it, it's really uh, uh, neo-feudal or neo-fascist. Uh, Neo-neoliberal means. The opposite of everything that uh, the free market meant to the classical economics. to The the classical liberals were the physiocrats, Adam Smith, uh, on the classical economics. And what they wanted to do was free the economy, meaning free markets, from economic rent. They wanted freedom from predatory uh, taxation, from predatory landlord rent, from predatory monopoly rent, uh, predatory uh, finance. Uh, that was their their neoliberalism was to actually free economies from unnecessary cost of production, unnecessary expenses of labor uh, and industry. Uh, but uh, today, neoliberal means uh, anti-government. Uh, neo- neoliberal in the 19th century was against governments controlled by the landlords through the House of Lords in England and their counterparts in uh, 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 other uh, countries. Neoliberal today means uh, again uh, uh, against uh, productive government. Uh, Again, any kind of government regulation. Neoliberal means don't uh, don't tax uh, uh, rentier income, tax labor and capital, tax income earned uh, uh, industrially or productively, but don't tax parasitism because we, we're the parasite class. And, and uh, we're against government taxation. We're against government regulation. Don't have anti-monopoly uh, laws. Let the monopolists make money. That's how we make money. We're the financial class. Uh, so uh, neoliberal means dismantle the whole edifice of government that's been put in place over the last two centuries and replace it with uh, uh, what they call a free market, meaning a a market without uh, any government uh, active role at all, a market of central planning. Neoliberal means centralized planning shifted away from uh, Washington and other political capital into the financial center, uh, uh, away from from Washington to Wall Street, away from uh, uh, London's uh, government to uh, uh, the city of London, uh, and in other countries away from their industry towards the uh, international uh, banking. So uh, neoliberal means the exact opposite of, uh, uh, to them, a free market is uh, um, uh, uh, a market where the wealthy people are free to do whatever they want to the renters, to the consumers, uh, to the debtors, and exploit them without any government interference with their extraction and predatory behavior
1: mm-hmm. or to the extent that policy is still done in Washington it's heavily influenced by financial and corporate interests yes ne-
0: neoliberalism is privatized what uh, had been socialized uh, uh for the last two centuries it privatized healthcare instead of uh, public health it's privatizing the educational system uh through uh, uh getting rid of public education uh, and it's privatized government uh, it's, uh government is up for sale in the United States by that with the Citizens United ruling of the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, the, the campaign donors decide uh, which politicians will have the money to buy the TV time and essentially to pay uh, in the Democratic the Party, the Democratic National Committee. Uh, the Democrats uh, appoint the heads of every government committee by how much money can you uh, contribute to the Democratic National Committee, which is a group of uh, uh, ultra right-wing uh, uh, rentiers, uh, very much the same people who finance the Republican Party. They're the same party, basically, uh, to contribute to make sure that uh, labor and industry do not have a representation within the Democratic Party, but only the uh, the rentier class, especially the, what I call the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate along with monopolies and the military-industrial conflict. That's the uh, the, the core uh, of the uh, campaign contributors uh, and to, who dominate both the Republican and uh, the Democratic parties, but most blatantly through the Democrats.
1: So do you explicitly then view the two-party system in the United States as something that the Rentiers have managed to co-opt into the service of perpetuating their interests? Yes.
0: Uh, basically, the uh the the extremist uh, uh libertarian uh rentier party deregulatory party is the republican and the democrats by pretending to be uh pro-labor by pretending to be liberal keep moving further and further to the right their job is to protect the uh the republican extremists uh from any criticism by labor unions or by by the left it's it's uh the democrats job is to detooth any attempt at uh, uh, socialism or really industrial capitalism taking the uh, dynamic uh, movement that it was evolving into socialism uh, a century ago.
1: Hmm. Since time is is starting to slip away from us, I wanted to give voice to what I think is probably a, a common Criticism of this view. And since half the country, uh, maybe this is an exaggeration, uh, believes in trickle down economics, just why is the concentration of wealth in the hand of rentiers specifically so bad? Is the idea that if this were industrial capitalism, as you've already laid out, and the money were going into investments in labor production and organization, then it might not be horrible, but the fact that it's just going toward pure wealth increases, and as you write in your book, increasing wealth is addictive, uh, but maybe through stock buybacks and land acquisitions, this means that the capital just doesn't benefit anyone who doesn't own it?
0: Well, obviously, wealth is not trickling down. It's being sucked up. Uh, the pretense is that the, the uh, rent extractors are part of the economy. That's why all of the money they extract is included in the national income accounts as and product accounts, the NIPA as product. Well if not product, uh, the, the product is uh, taken out of the production and consumption and the zero zero sum, zero product uh, uh, activity is, uh, is is all sucked up. Uh financial wealth grows exponentially by as I mentioned, by compound interest, and by asset price inflation. The recycling of finance into uh, more and more uh, purchase of stocks, bonds, real estate, and uh, rent-extracting resources uh, uh, makes uh, American uh, wage earners pay much more for housing. Uh, It used to be that uh, Americans would pay uh, less than 25% of their income for housing. This is in the 1940s and 50s now it's over 40 percent all this extra money for housing gets paid to the financial and uh, real estate sector basically rent is for paying interest uh and uh, anybody can buy uh, a house uh but you have to pay all of the rent to the banker uh in order to get the mortgage to uh buy the house and uh your only hope is well you can come out with a, a capital gain you can, which is really an asset price uh, gain is the uh, uh, price, uh, price of that real estate asset is inflated on, on credit. So uh, you're having that. Uh, the pretense is that, well, don't all these landlords spend their money back into the economy? Don't the uh, uh, bankers actually spend money back in? Well, the answer is, no, they don't. Bankers do not make loans for, to build factories. Or for uh, uh, machinery uh, and, they, uh, and uh, other uh, product, capital investment, what they do is they make loans uh, to corporate raiders who will buy a industrial corporation and then loot it. That's what private capital does. Uh, private capital uh, will simply take over uh, do, do to a company what it did to Toys R Us and Sears or any of the other companies that are going bankrupt. Uh, it'll buy a company uh it'll uh it'll do what Samuel Zell did with the uh, Chicago Tribune uh and they will uh, uh begin to pay back uh, the bankers with lent them the money to buy the Tribune by emptying out uh the employees uh, st- uh stockholding in in the Tribune so the uh the employees thought they were uh sharing in the uh cap- part owners of capital but uh, being a minority uh, investor uh, does not give him any rights, and so uh, that w- that was looted. Uh, the uh, The uh, uh, private the capital raider will then uh, borrow, say, "Well, uh, let's just sell off uh, some of the uh, assets, uh, the real estate, and then we'll sell off our buildings, and then we'll lease them back, and then we'll take the uh, the sale price that we get for selling the building." Uh, and we will pay ourselves a special dividend, in, uh, and uh, all of a sudden uh, they'll pay themselves the dividend, and the company will now uh, have to begin paying rent to the uh, party that to whom it sold the building, and is then taken a lease back on. Or the uh, capital investor will go to a bank and said, "Well, look, here's what uh, we're going to raise our prices. We're going to make the profits. Make us a loan again, and we will promise to pay you uh, up this." scheduled flow of rents and profits uh, from our uh, real estate and industry and monopolies and chemical companies that are manufacturing companies. And so they'll take out a loan, and then they'll use the loan proceeds not to increase the production, but to pay themselves a special dividend. And all of a sudden, the bank uh, has debts, to uh, just about everybody that it's borrowed from, uh, but uh, this money has not been spent. Uh, England right now has been going over the problem of Thames water. If you want to see how the process works, look at Thames water. That with, uh Margaret Thatcher uh, deciding to privatize. And the, the buyers of, of Thames water simply borrowed money, and they paid themselves uh, all the money that was borrowed. They just paid themselves the dividend. Uh, they, they did not fix the pipes that are leaking sewage into the water systems beaches they did they didn't fix the pipe from leaking uh they didn't uh, uh really put uh, much investment in at all and they uh they th- their role is to destroy the english water system and loot it and leave it a mess uh and uh, while taking out a huge amount of money pretending to spend the money back into the real economy so the fact is the money didn't trickle down from the owners of thames uh, water or from the uh, uh, corporate raiders in the United States, that's why they're called raiders. Uh, they pay themselves and uh, they then uh, will raise prices if they can. As I mentioned earlier, they call that profit inflation and it's merely monopoly rent power. Uh, and the Biden administration right now, it pretends to be pro-labor against monopoly and it has uh, Lisa Khan trying to fight monopoly, but it's fighting like hell uh, to prevent Google from being subject to monopoly, uh, the uh, monopoly breakup—it's uh, really the protector of monopoly. So it says one thing and does another. That's, I guess, politics throughout the world. Uh, but it's practiced uh, uh, to a, uh, an unprecedented uh, extent uh, in American politics uh, today. Uh, the, the pretense that uh, and the pretense that the uh, rentiers are productive is the assumption underlying all economic models and all economic statistics. But just because it's in the statistics doesn't mean it's empirical reality. It's a parallel universe. It's science fiction. Hmm.
1: Well, setting the, the rentiers aside for a moment is China, which has been booming industrially for some time. in a region I know that you've done a lot of writing about, is it an example of an economic situation where the wealth has and does trickle down?
0: Uh, the China has tried to prevent when you people say trickle down, they usually mean trickle down from wealthy people to uh, the rest of the population. Uh, I'm not sure there are a lot of billionaires that have emerged in China. I don't know whether their wealths have actually trickled down. Uh, it does through uh, companies like Huawei, which is uh, owned by the, uh, uh, by the employees there. Uh, but uh, what has created the wealth in China is largely government spending, uh, just like uh, the wealth in America was created since the 1930s, very largely. I mean, TBA, government spending. Uh, so uh, the, the assumption that if the economy is getting wealthier, it's trickling down, uh, misses the point that, uh, that most of the wealth is created by government uh, uh capital investment itself and by governments uh and in china uh the uh money creation and uh, uh central banking is a public utility unlike the case in the west uh, many of uh when to the extent that uh, china does have billionaires uh, this is not something that uh, is supposed to be uh, Marxist. You you do have people like Jack Ma who, who became very very uh, wealthy by being an entrepreneur uh, in creating uh, uh, you know uh, his company. Uh, but the government then said, well, you're going to really have to uh, you know turn your money over to government to spend much more. Uh, the problem is that uh, it, uh, wealth trickles down from the wealthy Chinese uh, to the extent that the government can lean on them to say, you know, you've got to do something with your wealth. Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, you're, we're not going to let you keep, keep it or uh, make the kind of profit you've been making uh, in the past. So uh, uh, China has, uh, uh, China's government has really taken the lead in organizing uh, industry, uh, just as the German and his government did, in a mixed economy. China's a mixed economy. It's not a uh, simply a... Uh, a communist or a totally socialist economy. It's a mixed economy. That was uh, what made it so much more productive than the Stalinist economy, Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia didn't really have a private sector, so you didn't have private entrepreneurs developing new things. Uh, uh, the Chinese approach was let a hundred flowers bloom. Of course, uh, we're, uh, we're going to let people see an opportunity to produce something that people need uh, to be a uh, productive. Uh, and make a fortune. Uh, It has to be a uh, decent-sized fortune. Uh, The problem that China is coping with now is uh, so much uh, of wealth in China is made simply on real estate uh, and on real estate financing. How do they avoid this this problem? That's uh, what they're dealing with uh, uh, daily right now, but that's a different problem. Hmm.
1: So if the wealth of the poor has been produced by government in China, and historically the same in the United States. How does this point the way to the key reforms that would need to be instituted to get, let's just restrict ourselves to the United States again, to get us out of the rentier economy?
0: Well, if most uh, wealth is created by the uh, public sector, uh, suppose you're a predator looking at this, and uh, you're thinking like uh, uh, the, uh, the bank robber uh well, why do you rob banks He said, well that's where the money is if you're a predator uh then you say well i can get wealthy by taking what the government has created and putting it into my own hands i can get private i'm going to get wealth by doing what the english did under margaret thatcher i can privatize it all and i can say have the government give me uh thames water sell it to me for a dollar and i'll make a billion dollars off it they can get wealthy the way the kleptocracy did uh in the soviet union after uh 1991 when it uh it dissolved they they just uh let uh they gave the companies uh oil uh, extraction uh electric utilities uh private companies just to the owners they gave them all away to the individuals the, all of this private wealth of russia came by turning over the wealth that the the government had created to privatize it. Well, uh, America is following uh, the same uh, 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 plan that America imposed on Russia under the kleptocrats. It's privatizing as much uh, wealth as possible. It's uh, uh, privatizing the turning roads into toll roads. Uh, In Chicago, for instance, it it privatized uh, the sidewalks and the parking uh, meters. So now it's privatized that the the parking costs uh, are, are way up. Uh, in private uh, In America, already in the 19th century, uh, mining companies and oil companies didn't have to pay a penny for uh, minerals that they extracted on government lands. Uh, and there's a whole tendency to try, try to privatize as much of the government uh, as you can right now, uh, culminating in privatizing the Republican and Democratic parties, the political system itself, Uh, uh, and uh, essentially that part of shifting all of the wealth away from government into private hands, and once it's in private hands, the aim of private wealth is not to increase overall public prosperity, but to uh, minimize it. Uh, A privatized wealth creates poverty and debt. That's how it makes its money. By creating poverty and debt, it it sucks the uh, income, the the land rent, the monopoly rent, the interest uh, charges, uh, it's in it financial feed. It sucks it all up uh, into the Rontier class. So, privatization is uh, essentially uh, it shifts planning itself into the uh, into, into the hands of the uh, Rontier sectors.
1: Hmm. But I'd like to talk about some some specific reforms and how they might be instituted. So, one thing: how do you think the tax code would need to be shifted? to make sure that rent payments benefit the public rather than just the wealthy.
0: That's what everything that Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, the whole 19th century wrote about. They said the basis of taxes should start with the land tax, because the landlords are the people who are, have been running the economy for the last uh, thousand years, and uh, we, we want uh, they don't do, play a productive role, just an ownership role. This uh, the uh, if you tax uh, the uh, the incre- the increasing land value of uh, real estate, then uh, th- this uh, rental value right now it's paid to the banks. Uh, the housing uh, prices rise. Right. Uh, the economy gets more prosperous. Uh, is uh, uh, the public uh, sector built parks and museums? to improve in a neighborhood. Uh, that increases the land value. Uh, when New York City uh, extended the subway line uh, along uh, Second Avenue, uh, property prices rose by three times what it actually cost New York City to uh, to build the subway. New York City could have had a a uh, uh, a land tax or a uh, what do you say a, uh, if, a give an uh, unexplained. Uh, an unexplained increase in value uh they could have taxed this increase in the price of real estate uh on the lower east side so that new york taxpayers didn't have to uh pay for the subway at all but instead they uh increased the uh, property tax uh on people who had to pay property taxes uh and they and they raised the uh Cost of uh, taking a subway uh, and the bus in New York. They it so that uh, essentially New York subway riders and uh taxpayers paid to create a huge increase in land prices for the landlords in the Upper East Side. A uh, land tax would have avoided that. The land, the uh, land tax is part of the economic rent tax that classical economics advocated. Uh, oil and minerals. Uh, uh, were provided by nature. There was no of production there. So appropriating them does entail a cost of paying uh, landlords, uh, paying uh, lawyers, and uh, you have to pay a couple of assassins to kill uh, the local uh, people who want to protect uh, the the, uh, the environment. Now, a little bit of assassination, and you have to have an army to sort of put in a penochet uh, for regimes that sort of hesitate to uh, 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 privatized, but basically uh, uh, the uh, mineral wealth should be the patrimony of a country and uh, uh, be taxed instead of sold sold off to uh, uh, American and European investors uh, who don't pay a tax because they pretend they don't make any money from uh, the mining or or the oil. And uh, you'd you'd certainly, uh, uh, either you would tax uh, finance, but that's hard to do because uh, the financial sector is basically uh, a criminogenic sector that avoids taxes. You have to, you have to retake uh, natural monopolies headed by the financial sector into the public domain. You have to make finance and banking uh, uh, a public utility. Now, ironically, it was the Chicago school in the 1930s. The Chicago plan was indeed to have 100% reserve for commercial banks. You don't let commercial banks create any more credit because they create credit for predatory reasons, for corporate takeovers, for uh, increasing uh, 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 real estate, price inflation. Uh, you you have the government uh, create the credit the government can, uh, uh, if you do have the local bank saying, well, you know, we don't, don't have enough reserve to make a productive loan. We have a customer who wants to build a factory. The government will then uh, provide a deposit uh, in the bank to enable it to, within the 100 reserve system uh, to lend out. The government will be the depositor of last resort and all of this. The, uh, uh, and this Chicago plan uh, was what Dennis Kucinich uh, was advocating in uh, 2016. Uh, uh, and that was uh, was University of Chicago. that was when they still had an idea of what uh, a free market really was uh, before they were all elbowed out by the uh, uh, by the Monetarists and uh, uh the Milton Friedman uh, uh, and Hayek gang. Hmm. Well, so does that answer the taxes the the tax system is really the key and and pub- and uh, retaking rent yielding resources into the public domain.
1: Mm -hmm. But So increased taxes and then shifting their basis, I see how it would lessen the burden on the poor and also increase the wealth of governments, both municipal and, and national going forward. But beyond freeing up the poor's capital, I don't see how it would have an immediate effect on the mountain of debt that the poor have in the form of mortgages or student loans or credit card and medical payments. And this leads me to wonder whether you think there ought to be uh, massive debt write-offs or debt payments made for citizens on the behalf of the government.
0: That is the most controversial uh, part of my policy. Yes, if you do not write down the debt, then you cannot reindustrialize the United States. The debt has reached such a critical mass that uh, the American economy is going to begin to look more and more like Germany in the 1920s under its reparation debt or England and France under their inter-ally war debts to the United States uh, for which they depended on German reparation uh, to pay. Uh, There's no way in in which uh, this idealized free market economy can be uh, uh, created, a real free market economy, without not only uh, taking away the property uh, rights for rent extraction, but you have to have a clean slate. That was the German economic miracle in 1948. They canceled all of the debts. It was easy for them to do politically because most of the debts in Germany were owed to the former Nazis, uh, and, you were, and nobody wanted them to have the money. Hard to do in the United States. Uh, and you're having our Congress even fighting against writing off uh, the student debt. But not only student debt should be written off, but uh, all. If, if, suppose you, uh, wrote off all, all debts. The advantage of writing off debts is not merely to free uh, the debtors from having to pay. It's if you wipe out the debts, you wipe out the savings of the 1%. It's the 1% that are the parasites. The 1% are the new feudal lord the society. You want to wipe out the savings that are the counterpart to these debts. So uh, there are two parts of the balance sheet. They're the assets and the liabilities. By wiping out the liabilities of homeowners, you uh, you uh, wipe out at the same time uh, uh, all of their debts. Now, obviously, you wouldn't want uh, this to create a new uh, absentee ownership of landlords and make them vibrant. So uh, the uh, the debts that are written off uh, for the mortgages in the houses would be replaced by a property tax that would absorb uh, not forty three percent of the. Uh, uh, the homeowner's income, but let's say 20, 25%. You would, you would re- reset uh, the debt in proportion to the ability to pay. So by writing down the debts, uh, the aim of any reform to make an economy resilient has to lie in bringing debts back within the ability to pay. Uh, that cannot be done bit by bit. It has to be done in a quantum leap. Uh, and that requires... Uh, certainly an intellectual revolution and uh given the fact that the one percent is now highly militarized and vicious uh it requires a a, a political revolution as well and it may be uh, uh in other countries of Europe this usually is involved force that's what people don't want to recognize that if you take if you view the economy in the way that I viewed it and the objective of economic reform is to get rid of economic rent And uh, uh, the economic rent has been uh, siphoning off, uh, transforming uh, wages and and industrial profits into uh, the uh, interest payments and financial wealth of of, uh, the creditors into creditor claims on the economy. Now the problem is not like the 19th century. It's not uh, a landlord claims on the economy. It's hereditary financial claims on the economy. You have to do for finance what the 19th century did uh, for uh, uh, the landlord class. You have to get rid of the property rights of uh, finance uh, that have resulted in privatizing the financial and the banking system in a predatory, unproductive way. And that requires a debt cancellation. Uh, you can see that most clearly for the global South countries, Latin America, uh, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia that's what they're talking about in de dollarization uh, today but uh, uh what uh, it's also needed for the united states and europe itself without a debt write down and a debt cancellation uh economics uh, in uh, the uh, in the west
1: have come to a dead end hmm. well all of this to me points to one question that you just you you briefly Mention, and that's how can these issues actually be resolved? And so if, if powerful financial interests, in effect, control the government, as we witness through lobbying efforts all the time, and they would stand to lose tremendously if the government shifted the tax code the way you proposed and writes off debt the way that you've proposed, then what chance is there for change? Is the only realistic chance of a violent revolution? I mean, you just said force, but they're the same thing.
0: Right. Well, uh, so in the sh- short term, uh, this is not going to happen, but let's look, let's look 10 or 20 years ahead. Suppose that the BRICS plus uh, China, Asia, uh, and uh, it's a, uh, economic revolution that it's trying to bring to uh, South America and Africa, is uh, suppose that the United States and the West uh, see uh, the mixed economy, the socialist economy, is growing way ahead technologically, living standard, culturally. While uh, they're shrinking in the United States and Europe, uh, they will have the same choice that uh, Europe had. Somehow, Europe, despite being dominated by Uh, The feudal landlord class ended up reforming itself and moving towards socialism up until World War I. Uh, It it was able to do it in the 19th century. That can happen again in the West. Uh, The the revolutions uh, after World War I were violent uh, in in Europe. Even the 1848 revolution was uh, somewhat violent. Uh, The Paris commune was violent. Uh, there will be some violence. Uh, basically, the United States is uh, at the root of violence. The United States has said uh, is uh, the head of the CIA put it, "We're Murder Inc." Uh, the United States said, "We want uh, the, the University of Chicago free market has made it very clear in Chile. They said you cannot have a free market unless you close down every university that teaches economics in Chile and replace it with." Us, you have to be willing to assassinate and kill every labor union leader. You have to kill every land reformist. You have to kill every university professor that says there is an alternative. You have to kill every progressive. If you're not willing to kill the uh, the intellectual elite of the population, if you're not able to have a mass murder such as we've organized in Chile, Argentina, and all throughout Latin America. Uh, then uh, you're not going to have a free market, meaning a free for us to take whatever we want from the economy and
1: smash it to pieces. Well, Michael, you have superbly, concisely, and also I think comprehensively answered all of my questions and we really covered a, a lot of material. So thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation with me.
0: Well, I can see you prepared very well. You have uh, you you understood my writing and what I've been saying. So
1: I'm very happy to have this conversation uh, discussion with you. And I look forward to seeing it transcribed. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.